So like we just heard, the Christmas story does not begin with once upon a time. It doesn't even begin with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, the Christmas story comes to us from the Gospels given to us in Holy Scripture. You see, in Matthew's Gospel, it starts with a lineage, a genealogy, rooting all of this story in history. And Luke, in his Gospel, when he starts off writing to Theophilus, says that he's paid careful attention to have a a narrative of the account of the life of Jesus Christ from eyewitness accounts. What we have in the Christmas story is not a fairy tale. It's history. It's news. In fact, it's better than that. It's good news that the greatest story that could ever be told has been told. It's, the, it's not the story of how we can get to God. Rather, it's the story of how God came to get us. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in uh, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep deep darkness, upon them a light has shined. You see, the light has shined upon us because the light we need does not come from within us. The light we need shines down upon us. The salvation we need does not come as we muster up the best parts of who we are and go to work. No, the salvation we need comes when the light shines down on us. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here and disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. See, the beauty and the wonder and the mystery and majesty of Christmas is that he doesn't just shine down his light on us. The light comes down and this light has a name, and his name is Jesus. He's Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thank you in the back. This is the hope, the joy, the peace, the love, and the meaning of Christmas. And so tonight, we want to fix our eyes on that light. We want to see Jesus. And so to help us do that, we are going to walk through the Christmas story by looking at some of the different characters. You see, all of them in one way, shape, or another were invited to see the newborn king. But what we see depends on what our hearts are filled with, don't they? Because our eyes are connected to our hearts. And so if our hearts come tonight filled with pride and envy and cynicism, then we're going to be blind to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if, on the other hand, our hearts are filled with anticipation and longing and love, and a real desire to see him, then we will be captivated by the light of his love. So Emmanuel has come. So let us go, behold, and adore him. Now I get to bring the first character to our uh, Christmas Eve service tonight. And the first character we want to look at is Zechariah. And he was a priest in the days of Herod. And he was married to his wife, Elizabeth, and they had been faithful in their walk in the Lord. But you see, there's something you need to know about this couple. They had struggled with infertility their whole life. And when we meet him in the story, they're at their final days. They're well past the point of being able to have children. And at this point, they've dealt with the hurt and the shattered dreams of raising children and leaving behind a legacy. 
And then we're told in his gospel that he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense as part of his duties as a priest. And while he's in the temple performing his normal duties, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And the angel tells him that his prayers for a son have been heard and that his son's name will be John. And then the angel goes on to tell him all sorts of things about this child, how he will bring joy and gladness, how he will go in the power and the spirit of Elijah to make the way for the coming Messiah and turn the people's hearts back to the Lord. But this must have been so hard for Zechariah to hear, right? I mean, you imagine that he probably didn't even hear past, you're going to have a son. I mean, how long had he prayed? How many nights had he gone before the Lord? Decades and decades of prayers unanswered. And he had come to deal with the confusion and the pain, and he had dealt with the the disappointment. And now this news from the angel is starting to stir up all of those emotions of dreams and hope that he had long since put to rest. And so Zechariah responds to the angel, and he says, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. See, Zechariah has been a faithful priest, and yet now he is confronted, his faith is confronted with circumstances that were hard to believe both intellectually and emotionally. Both he and his wife are past their prime, and it seems like this angel's good news is just too good to be true. And not only that, But to even entertain this news, he's got to go there, right? He's got to get his hopes brought back up again. He has to waken that part of him that has lied dead and dormant for so many years. And so in short, his eyes cannot see past the circumstances to see the God who can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Because with God, all things are possible. And so Zechariah doubts and he, he questions the angel's news because his eyes are fixed on the circumstances before him instead of having his eyes fixed on God and his word. And so as a result, he's disciplined. In fact, we see that he is unable to speak, that God closes up his mouth. You see, this is hard to hear sometimes, but God loves us so much that he's willing to discipline us so that he can shape us and guide us and direct our hearts to be able to see his love and to yearn for his light. And so for nine months, imagine that, not being able to say a word, for nine months, he's unable to speak. For, long, for nine long months, all he has are his inner thoughts and his, pra- and his prayers with the Lord. And it's in this time that the Lord strengthens and emboldens his faith. And so that day comes, And Elizabeth gives birth to a son. And even still, Zechariah is unable to speak. It's only eight days later when they bring him to have him circumcised, the the, the time when baby Jewish boys were given their name, that he's finally able to speak. Because everyone's going, what is his name? And it was the job of the father to give his name. And then God opens up his mouth and he says, his name will be John. And then after that, you can imagine all the things he's thought for nine long months. He just bursts forth in prophetic song, and it's beautiful. He blesses God for his faithfulness to keep his promise. He blesses God for the promise of a Savior who would come to bring an end 
to tyranny and death because now the long-awaited Messiah would come. And listen to what he says at the very end of his song. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Listen to this. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall rise and visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to give our feet the way to peace. So friends, come and adore. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Do not let the circumstances that surround you right now or your doubts conquer your faith. But with faith, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the sunrise who has visited us from on high. He will give us light to those of us who sit in darkness, who are in the shadow of death, and he will guide our feet to peace. So we think about Mary, one of the most indispensable members of the, the story of Christmas. Uh, even our youngest children here with us are very familiar with Mary and where she fits in the story. But when we think about the life of Mary and what she's done in the story of the coming of Jesus, there's two essential scenes that come to mind, one from Luke chapter 1 and one in Luke chapter 2. Starting in, in Luke 1, ever since young Mary first heard the message of God from the angel message, messenger Gabriel, she'd been thinking deeply about just what would happen with this baby Jesus. She asked, how will this be? Now, how can be a question of disbelief or skepticism? But we see quickly, this isn't what's going on in Mary's heart. No, she's actually very thoughtful, pondering this message that she received from the angel. She's faith-filled and actually asking just how God would do this amazing thing in her body. Gabriel responds, giving a summary of the miraculous birth to come. And Mary's response is, behold, or, or look, I am a servant of the Lord. This very different view of body ethics that is taking place here, as she's filled with expectant hope of what God will do in her body. And she is, in essence, saying, let it happen just like you said it. So then we have a very pregnant young teenager who makes a long journey, delivers in a stable, is greeted by shepherds at the birth. Here is yet another angelic message that's, that's uh, conveyed to her. And her response to the coming of Jesus, as she looks at what God had promised to come in the flesh, and she now holds this baby in her arms, she beholds him. She can look face to face with this baby and in that face, she sees the person of Jesus. And we know from throughout John, to see Jesus is to see God. She is that one of those first individuals to get that glimpse of God, something Moses could not do, something Elijah could not do. Here is Mary, a simple young teenage woman looking into the face of God. As she is in this magnificent moment, a juxtaposition of which authors will spend lifetimes writing about. She ponders it. That's a pretty appropriate response. It's a pretty significant point in history. And we hear in the, in the words of Luke chapter 2 that she treasured these things. She pondered them in her heart. 
This, for us, is to understand that this is what the response of faith looks like. At the coming of Jesus, we're not always going to have all the answers. We're not understanding this. We come face to face with the text and understand of who Jesus is and the story that we hear and reflect on throughout the season. We have questions. We have to think on them. These are difficult things to come to understanding. But this response of faith is one to move towards it, to understand, to seek understanding through this, through this interaction. We, like Mary, must have a fertile and faith-filled heart at the coming of Jesus. It's interesting that later in Jesus' ministry, when he was teaching, he would tell a parable about four soils. He described three of them as not being able to really receive the word. And then he goes on to describe one that, ironically, sounds a lot like Mary. Describes it as a good soil that received the word, would hold on to it firmly with an honest and good heart, and it would bear fruit in time with patience. Our response to the coming of Jesus is to be like Mary this season, like good soil. We need to receive this word, let it sit in us, think about its meaning, its impact, let it go burrowing deep into our hearts so that out of it can come the wellspring of fruit and change in our lives. We must work hard to really retain this. It's interesting how many people in this story hear the words, see this interaction of Jesus, and then go on their way. Mary, day after day, you can think mothers who spend that time with that child, day after day, every time she looked toward her child, she was thinking, this is what God promised. This is what God's doing. As she continues to think through Jesus, that's similar to how we should continue to sit with this message. Let it sit in our mind to reflect on it, to contemplate what God has done for us through Jesus. Holding our minds on the Christ event, not merely of his birth, but looking ahead also to his death and resurrection to come. So in the mere hours we have before Christmas Day, we can begin this practice not only uh, to provide meaning to this holiday, but also as a practice that gives us life and hope for the rest of the 364 days a year. Hear the message of Jesus' birth, his life, his death and resurrection. Think deeply and ponder these truths as knowing Jesus is to adore him. And adoring Jesus really means knowing him better. Oh, come let us adore Jesus like Mary, boldly believing and continually pondering the message of God. All right, what if I told you that the list of your accomplishments would come nowhere near filling a library full of books, but would barely fill one line of a single page? Well, what if I told you of the dozens of things that are on your bucket list, you could only cross off one thing? Would you say your life would be a fulfilling life? Would you say that at the end of that life, you would be satisfied? For honest, we would say, no, 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 I don't want that life. And that's because we live in a world of endless options and potential opportunities. And we're told, hey, the world is at your fingertips. It's right there. And we're, we're, we've been told that if we don't experience it all, that we will be left disappointed and dissatisfied. That's why we've invented something called FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. And at the end of that, all we're left to show is this burden of anxiety because we haven't done enough. We haven't accomplished everything we wanted to, and we haven't experienced it all. 
That's why I want to introduce you to the next person in our Christmas story this evening. His name is Simeon. Some of you are like, who's that? Right, because Simeon is this small bit player in the Christmas story. He never makes it into the Christmas nativity scene. You've probably never seen him. So if, you, if you've heard of him at all, you're wondering, hey, what part does he play in this whole thing? Well, Simeon, the reason why we don't think of him much is because we're actually not very impressed by him. We'll just gloss over his story. Because according to our standards, He hasn't done much. He's not impressive. That is to say, if we were to evaluate Simeon's accomplishments, what he's done, he hasn't done anything. We'd conclude Simeon is a nobody. Actually, Luke chapter 2, verse 25 tells us exactly what Simeon did every single day of his life. By the time of this story, Simeon was an old saint. He was an old saint, religious and devout. He was full of the Holy Spirit, Luke says. And he had only one thing on his bucket list. It was a promise given to him from God. You see, the Spirit of God came to him and said, hey, you will not see death until you see the Lord's Christ. In other words, the one thing on Simeon's bucket list was to meet Jesus. That was it. So you might think, Really? That's all you want to do with your life? And yes, that's it. That's all Simeon wanted to do. For Simeon, it wasn't just one thing that was tacked on to a bunch of other things he would like to accomplish with his life. For Simeon, this was the only thing that meant anything. This was the only thing that he wanted to do. And Simeon took God's promise seriously. He positioned his whole life in pursuit of this promise waiting for the consolation of Israel, Jesus, his Savior. In a world of endless options and potential opportunities, Simeon kept it simple. That means every morning, this is what Simeon did. He woke up and he made a beeline to the temple every single day. You, do you think about what his friends and neighbors thought of this guy? They would have said, this guy's boring. This guy's wasting his life. It's a disappointing end. He is a loser. What a shame. But that's not how Simeon felt about the situation. Every day that he entered this temple, he had this palpable anticipation that this day could be the day that he sees his Savior. Was he ever disappointed? Yeah, he was disappointed. I imagine him looking at every single baby boy's face, and if it wasn't Jesus, he would feel a little bit of disappointment. Was he ever doubting? Sure. He did this for 10 years, 20 years. In 40 years, you would imagine if he had not yet seen the face of his Savior, any man would have doubted if he actually heard from God. But do you think he ever regretted it for one second? No way. In fact, when that day actually came, when Simeon finally stared into the face of the newborn king, he was holding baby Jesus in his arms and he was not underwhelmed. He was not disappointed. Simeon was fully satisfied, Luke says. When baby Jesus was in Simeon's arms, Simeon sings a song to God. And you don't just sing because you're kind of iffy about something. You sing 
because you're satisfied. You feel something. He sings these words. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvations, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light as a, of a revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. See, Simeon was fully satisfied. Now he can die in peace. He's full. He's happy. And most of all, he's whole. So I want to ask you this. If the one thing that you did with your life was to meet Jesus, would that be enough? Would you be completely satisfied with that outcome? Because what Simeon shows us is that you can be. In fact, you will be. If your life is oriented and your ultimate pursuit is anything but to meet Jesus, then you will be sorely disappointed. But if your life, your ultimate pursuit is to meet Jesus and to know him, Simeon shows us that you will surely be satisfied. Seven Mile Road, in a world of endless options, of potential opportunities, Simeon keeps it painfully simple and he is completely satisfied. I am so thrilled that you are giving an hour of your Christmas season to turn your attention to the Word of God and to the family of God with us. Not everyone in the Christmas story was excited to hear about a newborn king. There already was a king in Israel. His name was Herod. How did he respond when the wise men from the east strolled into his courts and said, uh, where is the new king? In one of the biggest understatements of scripture, the text says that Herod heard those words and he was disturbed. I bet he was. If you are king, and someone else shows up claiming to be king, someone has to give. And what was Herod's response? Not me. Does anyone remember the final scene of The Godfather Part 1 when Michael eliminates each of his rivals one by one and blood is shed from New York all the way to Vegas? This is how Herod responded to Jesus, not with adoration, but with eradication. Every son under two in all of Galilee put to death. We don't hear much of that part of the story at Christmas, not only because it is so gruesome, but because it is also a window into our hearts if Christ really was the Son of God and he really was born on that night, then we have all lost the right to be king of our lives. Jesus is Lord. Another way to say that is to say that if Jesus is who the scriptures claim that he is, 
then he can and will brook no rivals. Not Herod, not you, not me. We love to think of Christmas as one option in a potpourri of potential holiday celebrations. But that is not how Christmas works. You either receive Jesus as Lord or you reject Jesus as Lord. But there is no middle ground here. Herod instinctively knew this and he made his choice. What about you? What about me? We get one minute now to reflect on that part of the story and to examine our hearts and to say yes to Jesus. Let's do that together. Shepherds would know darkness. They would know darkness from overnight shifts protecting their sheep. They would know darkness from the dirt on the ground that would grind into their fingernails and stain their clothes. The shepherds would know the darkness of being too unclean to worship their God. See, these shepherds knew the darkness of being on the wrong side of life. But they kept working this job. They had to. But this job itself kept them unclean until one night, unfazed by their filth, unfazed by their sin, unfazed by their job, an angel of the Lord appeared to a group of shepherds in a field. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring to you good news. News of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then suddenly that one angel was joined by more than you and I can count. And they sang, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. And when the angels went away to heaven, because that's, that's where the angels go, the shepherds immediately went to Bethlehem. And as they found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger, they knew it was all true. And they told others. They told others what they'd been told. And Mary heard them and treasured up all those words. And they went back to the fields glorifying God and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. And it was clear that the light had shone into the darkness, their darkness, and changed them. And then there were some wise men. The wise men knew distance. They knew distance. They had set out days and weeks and months ago from a home far away. They knew the distance of time as the sun would come up and go down over and over on their journey. They knew the distance of reaching the summit of one hill only to see the next hill was taller and closer than they thought. 
And all of this was on top of the distance of not being God's people. See, these men, having wealth and education, but not having the light they had so desperately longed for, had literally searched the stars. That's what they did. They searched the stars. And they had also searched the scriptures some. At least enough so that this next thing makes sense. See, this one night they saw this one star rise. They saw his star rise, they said. And then they took off for Jerusalem, chasing a star. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, they asked after their long journey. And, sorry, the wise men went on their way from Herod that we heard from about a moment ago to Bethlehem after their answer. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell, fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Once far, far away, these wise men had been brought near their newborn king. And everything they had hoped for laid in that manger. See, there were priests in Jerusalem that were the opposite of the shepherds. See, what the shepherds had in filth and uncleanliness, the priests in Jerusalem had in their spotless lives. See, they were so clean and right, it seems. But the angel-filled sky was in the field for the shepherds, not in the temple for those priests. See, there were scribes in Jerusalem that were the opposite of the wise men. See, they read their Bibles like them, but the scribes, they were insiders. And they were supposedly insiders amongst God's people. These priests, these scribes were the ones who should know about Jesus because they are close. But the star was seen from afar. It just was. The priests and the scribes were natural choices. But clean and close aren't qualifiers in the kingdom. At least not when the king of the universe steps off the throne and into a stable in the form of a baby who's come to die for the world. See, the Lord with his angels and with his stars found the dirtiest and the furthest to announce the good news to first. When the newborn king arrives, status doesn't matter. Worship does. See, what matters tonight is not how clean or close you are, but whether your heart lifts Jesus high. The Lord's Christ is here. The born King of the Jews is here. 
Will we look at Jesus and adore him? Will we look at Jesus and see all we ever hoped for? Will we look at Jesus and see the one who will make all things right? Holy Spirit, help us do that. Help us adore him.